thank you all for being here on a cold Saturday morning. <laughs> We've got an exciting lineup today in our round table. But first, first of all, I'm going to start with a brief discussion of the history of biographical dictionaries in Australia as a way to set the scene. Biographical dictionaries have a long history in Australia, indeed existing well before there was an Australia. The Australian Dictionary of Biography is part of a lineage of biographical dictionaries produced in Australia since the middle of the 19th century. For well over 100 years, biographical dictionaries and other works collecting the stories of notable Australians have offered readers particular visions of an Australian nation. With these visions shifting over time in response to changing social, cultural, political and historiographical trends. I'm going to start our roundtable session with a very brief overview of this history of biographical dictionaries in Australia before we move on to the main event, which is to discuss issues for the future, in particular sustainability, resource sharing, revisions and representation. My aim in this introduction is to set our, con our conversation in the context of the journey so far by highlighting a couple of past trends and changes that provide, I hope, an illuminating background as we think about the future of these projects. I'll focus mostly on the issue of selection or representation, because that's what I know best, and here I'll discuss two themes in particular, the gradual breaking of ties between Australia and Britain, and demographic changes in Australia, this last shift being considered alongside the rise of Indigenous history and women's or feminist history. I'll then make a few comments about the other issues we'll canvas in this session and introduce our five speakers, who will each then speak for five minutes introducing their respective projects before we move into a moderated discussion. Near the end of the session, we'll open up to the audience. Before I get into my discussion though, an important definitional note. I'm taking a very broad approach to the term biographical dictionary today. But I do want to acknowledge that there's a considerable variation among those I'm going to speak about. At one end, there are works such as the Australian Dictionary of Biography, a long-running multi-volume work widely recognised for its scholarship, which has been produced through a nationwide collaboration involving many authors, editorial staff and other stakeholders. At the other, there have been a number of single-authored, standalone, more popular productions, which vary considerably in scale and scholarship. There we are. <laughs> Biographical dictionaries of various kinds have been published in Australasia since the latter part of the 19th century. Prior to the establishment of the Australian Dictionary of Biography in 1957, these tended to be produced by a sole author and to focus upon officials who held, individuals, sorry, who held official positions or could perhaps be said in some way to represent established authority or who produced literary or artistic works. They were, of course, print works, often only encompassing a single volume and tending not to be subject to revisions, therefore not facing the same issues of sustainability that we'll be discussing today. From the 1960s, there was something of an explosion in the number of books about famous Australians being published. And from the 1990s, there's an even more obvious increase in publications in this broad genre. Many of these works aren't biographical dictionaries per se, and they don't necessarily use that language. But they do represent an upturn in publishing in the broader genre of texts about famous Australians, or great Australians, or similar terminologies. 
Within this explosion of publishing on famous Australians, there's also been a diversification. They've varied in terms of their focus, with some focusing, for example, on particular occupational groups, and others seeking to highlight the achievements and contributions to the nation of individuals from specific demographic groups, such as women or Indigenous Australians. They have varied in terms of their audience. Some have been popular works aimed at the general public, some scholarly works, and others addressed to children, often presenting those included as role models. And they have varied in authorship and production processes, encompassing, for example, both single-authored volumes in which decisions on selection and interpretation are made by one individual, and multi-authored works with more complex selection processes, such as the Monash Biographical Dictionary of 20th Century Australia, or the bicentennial publication, The People Who Made Australia Great. As well as this slew of print publications, there are, of course, today a range of innovative and high-quality web resources, including those represented today on our panel. So I'm going to turn now to my two issues of representation, which I want to discuss to give you a taste of how some of these historical biographical dictionaries have dealt with this issue and how things have changed over the past century and a half. We at the ADB are often asked the question, who gets in? This is, of course, a perennial question for all biographical dictionaries. And I'm going to talk about it from two angles, nation and inclusivity. Choices about selection and representation have changed as Australia's place in the world has changed. While the precise contours of this shift in Australian identity are still being debated, it appears to be widely accepted that Britishness having been a key strand in Australian identity, was increasingly abandoned by Australians from the 1960s. Australian biographical dictionaries have been shaped over the years by the complex interactions of imperialism and nationalism in the country's history, and by the ways in which various strands of identity, including British race patriotism and Australian nationalism, have been imagined and weighted. The earliest biographical dictionaries in Australia appeared prior to Federation in 1901. That is, before an Australian nation took formal constitutional shape. Nationalistic feelings and attachment to Australianness, imagined in various ways, were not absent, but these ideas and sentiments were fluid and they reflected the complex ways in which the colonies related to each other and to Britain and the ways in which they imagined themselves. The biographical dictionaries of the time show this fluidity. In his Australian Dictionary of Dates and Men of the Time, published in 1879, Sir John Henneker Heaton described his aim as being to provide a summary of every branch of Australian history. But the book's, book's subtitle promised that it contained a history of Australasia, and a number of New Zealanders are to be found among the individuals included. Of course, at this time, New Zealand was a potential Federation member. As well, the book was both a work of reference on the Australian colonies and a record of the achievements of the British Empire in the Antipodes. Its dedication was to the Duke of Manchester and the Council of the Royal Colonial Institute. And it expressed praise for the Institute's work to promote permanent union between the mother country and her colonies and to advance the best interests of every portion of the empire. 
Philip Minnell's The Dictionary of Australasian Biography, published in 1892, was likewise Australasian in focus, and its preface was addressed to both English and colonial readers. These works showcased the lives of individuals who had contributed to the Australasian colonies, or to a future federated Australia, as Minnell highlighted, but they also had an imperial focus, giving them a relative indifference to the question of who was Australian or Australasian, and thus who should be included or excluded on that basis. Australian biographical dictionaries published after Federation, especially from the middle of the 20th century, show a much greater wrestling with the question of who might be considered sufficiently Australian to include, and a more explicit nationalism. In the preface to his two-volume Dictionary of Australian Biography in 1949, Percival Searle discussed this question in some detail. He described the subjects of the book as Australians, or men closely connected with Australia, and provided a percentage breakdown of their birthplaces. In order to be included, he had decided that a person born in Australia had generally to have remained long enough to have been influenced by their education and surroundings. And for those born overseas, he excluded mere birds of passage. This greater consideration of who was an Australian, and thus eligible for inclusion, might reflect something of a boom in nationalist feeling around this time. Australian citizenship as such came into being in 1948, and a number of writers and intellectuals in the 1940s held the idea of Australia as a nation at the centre of their thinking. As I've noted, from the 1960s, there was something of an explosion in the number of books about famous Australians being published. And this, of course, was taking place in the wake of Britain's initially unsuccessful bid to enter the European Economic Community in 1961, which now, of course, takes on a different cast. <laughs> this had helped to spark a ferment of thinking about Australian national character. Self-conscious attempts were made to construct new symbols of identity relevant to a post-imperial world. But these efforts received ambivalent responses. Moments of national commemoration, like the bicentennial celebrations in 1988, seem to have produced peaks in anxieties around national identity. And these occasions also tended to produce incre increased reflection on the cast of characters who deserved celebration as great Australians. Several publications about eminent figures from the country's past were produced at the time of the bicentenary. Many of these more recent books have wrestled with the issue of defining who is an Australian, reaching various different decisions. A book called 1000 Famous Australians, published in 1978, included men and women born in Australia, even if they achieved fame overseas, immigrants who spent the remainder of their lives in Australia, and those who spent substantial portions of their lives in the country. In her 1992 book, The Dictionary of Famous Australians, Anne Atkinson focused upon those who had spent the main part of their life or career in Australia and chose to exclude figures such as early governors or explorers, whom she described as important in Australian history, but not famous Australians. And in their 2006 publication, 1001 Australians You Should Know, Toby Cresswell and Samantha Trenoweth preferred to be flexible, including individuals like James Cook, who'd spent little time in Australia and were neither born nor naturalised here, because without them, Australia would be a very different place. 
Now the ADB, interestingly, is something of an exception in that it offered no explicit reflections on the question of who qualified as Australian until the publication of volume 18 in 2012. In the preface to that volume, General Editor Melanie Nolan observed that the concept of the nation had always had some pliability, with individuals moving overseas, sometimes not to return, and others migrating to Australia from elsewhere. And in the 21st century, as we've been discussing at this conference yesterday, the issue is, has a slightly different cast in terms of the place of the national dictionary in a globalised world where transnational history is a popular framework. Of course, the issue of selection that's probably most often considered when we think about representation, and which we've already been discussing at this conference, relates to demographics. Australia has been transformed demographically in the 20th century with the dismantling of the restrictive white Australia immigration policy and the adoption of a multicultural ideal. Other social and cultural shifts have also changed the face of the country. In the 1960s and 1970s, a so-called second wave of feminism emerged, with women's liberation groups being formed and feminist activists challenging gender roles and family structures. At the same time, protests by Indigenous Australians were accelerating, demanding an end to discrimination, the granting of civil and land rights, and self-determination. Alongside and often as part of these movements and the resulting social, cultural and political transformations, came historiographical developments that have transformed the writing of history and biography, including the rise of women's, gender and feminist history and the growth of Indigenous Australian history as a field. All of these transformations were reflected in biographical dictionaries, which display a clear trend across the years to include greater numbers of women and a more ethnically diverse cast of characters. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, biographical dictionaries usually in included very few women and even fewer people not of European descent. In Menel's 1892 dictionary, for instance, I was able to identify only 20 women among more than 1,500 entries and 15 men of non-European descent. 14 of those were Māori men from New Zealand and one was Fijian. After Federation, when New Zealand decided not to enter, people of non-European descent effectively vanished from Australian biographical dictionaries for several decades. I was unable to identify anyone not of European descent among more than 2,200 entries in Fred Johns' 1934 book, An Australian Biographical Dictionary, or among the 1,030 people included in Searle's Dictionary of Australian Biography. Both books had slightly larger numbers of women, but it was still less than 5%. Considerable change has taken place over the following decades, and especially from the 1960s and 1970s. This change did not go unremarked. In 1992, Atkinson commented upon the uneven demographic balance of the entries in her Dictionary of Famous Australians. Among over 600 people, she said, 18% were women, but the proportion was much lower for the colonial period at 7% and somewhat higher for the post-war period at 25%. She surmised that these figures reflected changing social and historical conditions, and she hoped that future editions would include even more women as women became increasingly prominent in all areas of activity. Her dictionary also included at least 25 people not of European descent, there were 19 Indigenous Australians, five of whom were women. The volumes of the ADB also display this pattern of changing demographics. 
women constituted less than 2% of entries in the first two volumes published in 1966 and 1967 and covering the period 1788 to 1850. Whereas the two most recent volumes, those covering the period 1981 to 1990 and published in 2007 and 2012, had 17 and 20% women respectively. While the supplementary volume, as I think has been mentioned already, published in 2005, had 30% women almost. A similar pattern of gradual increase is evident in relation to entries about Indigenous Australians. Volumes 1 to 12 included only 32 Indigenous Australians in total, and volumes 4 and 7 had none. The following five volumes have an inclusion rate of about 1.9 to 2.7%. While there were 50 Indigenous Australians in the supplementary volume, which is 9%, and 26 in volume 18, which is 3.8%. But despite these changes, it could be argued that both women and Indigenous Australians continued to appear relatively infrequently in biographical dictionaries and other works about significant Australians. And these ongoing imbalances have provoked criticism, as we've begun to discuss already but also the production of targeted publications focused upon those groups. Such targeted works have a long history, with collective biographies of historical women in English, for example, traceable to at least the mid-18th century. In Australia and internationally, however, collections of women's lives flourished in the wake of the emergence of women's liberation and the re-energising of the feminist movement from the late 1960s. Heather Rady's book, 200 Australian Women, which carried the subtitle, A Redress Anthology, is a good example. Another type of targeted publication in Australia have been books focused on the lives of Indigenous Australians, most of which that I've found have been published since 1990. Targeted works have also been produced focusing upon particular occupational areas, although not necessarily in response to perceived inadequacies of representation elsewhere. Now, thus far, I've been discussing issues of selection and representation as they played out in the past, but of course, there are many other issues facing dictionary projects in the 21st century. Many of these were not such issues, or at least not in the same ways, for the corpus of 19th and 20th century works I've been discussing. Today, of course, we operate in a digital environment, unlike most of the projects I've discussed thus far. And this shift to the digital, as we've been talking about, has brought a range of opportunities, but also challenges. Sustainability is one, revisions are another. Dictionary projects in the 21st century often face the need not only to be funded and resourced to produce an output, one or more print volumes or a web-based resource, but also to secure the resources needed to maintain and sustain that output. The ease of access to information and its ever-expanding nature, as well as the ease of interaction with the public brought about by the web, have created increasing pressures to revisit and revise existing material in the light of new research, fresh interpretations and public expectations. But rather than hear any more from me on those issues, we're privileged to have here today five expert panellists who collectively have an extraordinary breadth and depth of experience in the creation and curation of national dictionary projects and who will share that experience with us as we explore these issues for the future further. So before we move into the roundtable discussion, I'm going to introduce each of our speakers in turn and call on them to, to pre present their five-minute introductions to their respective projects. 
In order to make sure that we can get through all the topics covered for today, I do ask people to stay close to time. So, start with Kiri. Kiri is the director of Auslit, the Australian literature resource, the major web-based facility for researching on Australian literary cultures. And she is a research fellow and senior lecturer in research methods in the School of Communication and Arts at the University of Queensland. Her involvement with Auslit extends back to its inception in 1999. Previously, she was a researcher at the National Centre for Australian Studies at Monash University, where she was project manager and co-associate editor of the four-volume print Bibliography of Australian Literature, published between 2001 and 2008. Her research interests have included Australian drama, in which she has published articles and edited a volume of three short plays written by Australian women in the 1920s bibliography, and through her involvement with Auslit, the development of digital humanities. Kerry Kilner. Thank you, Karen, um, and hello, everyone. Uh, first of all, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we gather, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders uh, and communities past, present, and future. I'd also like to thank uh, Melanie and um, the ADB and ANU for inviting me here to represent Auslit. Um, really delighted to be here. And here ho here's hoping that today brings us some happy news by the end of the day. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to turn the laptop on, which I think I can do from here. The laptop's asleep. So it is. Hello, wake up. Okay, sorry about this. Stick to time. <laughs> okay, great. Um, I'll put this up here. Just a little bit of extra command of it. So, as Karen mentioned, I'm the director of Ostlit and the general editor as well. Um, and I teach research methods and convene an internship program at the School of Communication and Arts at the University of Queensland. However, Auslit is by far the largest of my responsibilities. Um, I just want to give you a bit of background and tell you a little bit about where Auslit is and what it's up to at the moment um, and let you know uh, who the team is. So in 2016, the team's made up of two computer programmers uh, plus a tiny amount of the wonderful Kent Features time, four content development staff, plus a few student interns and a very small number of volunteer indexes. This is down from, a, from some 40 people at the height of our um, development in our found foundation years, um, but we still manage to, to keep things going. So Auslit can be um, described as a combination of national scholarly bibliography, a dictionary of biography, a publisher of full text and the outcomes of research into Australian cultural history. So this is our um, homepage um, and it's, it's, there's lots of ways you can get lost in here. Um, so Auslit is um, infrastructure for researchers concerned with the history and the art of storytelling as it relates to Australia. It's cosmopolitan and inclusive incorporating information about the many and various people who have been associated with Australia and who intersect in some way with cultural production. It's a rich resource for teaching, 
So we have teaching um, information uh, and resources and a site where users can access high quality data, information and a diverse range of both born digital and digitised content. But really, like all of the resources we've heard about in the, over the last day and a half or day and a bit, um, during the conference, it's a rabbit hole down which you can get lost for hours on end. Uh, in terms of the contents of the database, uh, it's made up of more than 877,500 bibliographic records. Uh, this is the record for his natural life, which is one of the, one of the richer amongst us. Uh, and that the, these records describe the publication history of each of the included works. In this case, you've got all of the, the, the publication history related to the work itself, but also the adaptations, um, all of the contents of each of the editions, where it might have been serialised, uh, and, then, and then related works, and, uh, uh, and then a whole bunch of links along the side here, which pro provide you links straight into the Trove, the wonderful Trove newspaper database, and uh, specific research projects. Uh, there's also over 160,000 uh, biographical records made up of birth, death, heritage, uh, primary and alternative names, data, plus brief narratives of the lives of people. And there are also, this is Eddie Marbos, as we, someone who we discussed yesterday. Um, and we also include organisational records with the same level of detail. There are hundreds of um, exhibitions or hundreds of informational web, web pages and online exhibitions, information trails and curated pathways through the Auslit records and other content. And we also publish full text uh, out of copyright materials. So there's a large collection of, of um, historical fiction, poetry, plays, uh, children's literature, that sort of thing and um, a range of in-copyright material as well for which we've received clearance. In terms of stats, where um, Auslit has received in the last year um, over 1.5 million page views, which equates to about 41,000 per day. It's responded to more than 220,000 purposeful searches, so searches um, by people entering text into our search box and or constructing an advanced search. Uh, so that's approximately 600 a day. We've also answered almost 3,000 emails from the general public uh, and our users, and we have an active social media profile with almost 3,000 followers on Twitter. So we've, we've actually got quite a good reach into, um, into Australia and internationally. So Auslit covers all forms of storytelling, through the traditional literary forms and genres to film, television, theatre, radio, and increasingly organisational and subject-specific material relating to the production of literature and other cultural narratives. We are, for example, in the throes of converting Bridget Griffin Foley's A Companion to the Australian Media, um, which was a, a book published in 2014, um, typical companion uh, with authoritative, individually authored entries on people, organisation and media, organisations and media related themes across Australian history. So 
This is one of the records of the um, companion. Okay. Um, so uh, we've, we also have established and supported and published dozens of specialist research projects, so um, uh, the, arra ranging across um, a variety of, of complexity and subjects since the launch of the first version in 2000. Uh, and indeed, that original database was built by merging a number of pre-existing biographical and bibliographical projects into the, online, into the one online database. Um, and those projects came from, a, from eight universities at that time, though we've worked with um, up to 12 universities at a time developing content within Auslit. So we've been building on that, on that foundation ever since to become what is a profoundly important cultural heritage resource. Uh, and the support for this sort of research, researcher-driven specialist projects is a distinctive feature of Auslit's work. There's always a range of projects going on alongside our continuing work of recording details of contemporary Australian storytelling in all its forms. And one of our current activities is um, the, the development of um, an engagement with tertiary level teaching by developing a platform called OzArts at Hostlit. And I'll just show you one of them. This is an interface that um, is where students are using the platform to participate in digital humanities-inspired um, activities. Uh, and uh, so for those in interested in performing arts history, we're also currently involved in, the digita in a digitisation project, unearthing and making available in full text Australian theatre texts from the first half of the 20th century. Finishing up. So um, when Michael Kirby was um, speaking on Friday night about the sorts of bi bibli biographical entries he'd like to see, entries that include text, image, video, audio, archival material, etc. I was happy that our design thinking at the moment is really aimed to support the creation of just these sorts of multifaceted narratives about Australian lives and stories. So I'll leave it there and invite you to bury yourself in some of the um, rabbit holes that you'll find on Auslit. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Kerry. Uh, our next speaker is going to be Gavin McCarthy. We've switched the order around a little. <laughs> Gavin is director of the eScholarship Research Centre at the University of Melbourne and has worked at the University of Melbourne in and around archives since 1978. From 1985 to 1999, he led the Australian Science Archives Project, pioneering the development of national information services and infrastructure to support the history of Australian science, technology, medicine and engineering through the utilisation of emerging digital technologies. This resulted in the website BrightSparks, later the Encyclopedia of Australian Science, with its online heritage resource manager software. Gavin became director of the Australian Science and Technology Heritage Centre at the University of Melbourne in 1999 and continued to develop this software in association with a number of projects including the ADB. In 2007, he became director of the eScholarship Research Centre. Welcome, Kevin. I'm not sure what happens next because I think that's meant to disappear and mine is meant to... Oh, no. oh there it's going to happen for me. Right, here we go. Now, the reason I'm wearing my hat is so that you can recognise me in that picture. I'm that little <laughs> black dot. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, now I take my hat off. So I don't need to say any more about who I am, and hopefully if I hit the right button here, this thing will move forward. So, yes, I try and stick very closely to the five minutes. Uh, even though there are lots and lots of uh, public knowledge web resources that have been built using the Online Heritage Resource Manager, I'll stand and talk into the microphone if that's any better. Um, the one I'll probably focus on today is the Encyclopedia of Australian Science because that was what was in the project. I think, um, I mean, I've known Kerry for a very long time. I think the predecessors to Auslit were well underway when I got going, uh, getting the Science Archives project up and running in 1985. And I think the interesting thing about the predecessors of the Encyclopedia is that it was born digital. It was in a database from the very beginning. And the thought that we might actually publish a book came as a secondary consideration. And I, you know, I look down here at Margie and I think of some meetings I had here in the National Library in about 1989, where I had the database um, uh, for the Register of the Archives of Science and Australia Records of Individuals on my little laptop, which had a tiny blue screen about this big. And we actually did the coding to take the output and produce a print form of it in the meeting. And that was what could be done in those days. I don't think you could tackle that sort of uh, thing now. And that was actually really exciting to think if you've got your data in a really good structure, then you've got multimodal output at your fingertips. Um, one of the things that characterised the Encyclopedia or Brightsparks as it became known first off when it was online in 1994, was that it was originally conceived to fill a gap. It was not conceived as a biographical dictionary at all. It was conceived as a register of archives because there was no information infrastructure to actually enable historians of science to find records that were useful to them. So we came in to complement what we already knew existed, things like the ADB and other, mostly print resources, but also the concept of the distributed national collection, again, a concept from the National Library that existed at the time was saying, okay, what is it that we could do with very little money to make it better for researchers and actually help and extend the whole notion of that there is a history of Australian science and that there are lots of people who are interested in it across the whole community and how can we reach them? And so with a little bit of funding from the Committee to Review Australian Studies in Tertiary Education in 1986, we got the database going we, and we got some content into it. Uh, I was sitting next to Odette yesterday and we had some inter really interesting conversations and uh, nursing came into the picture, of course, and she's going to talk about that in a minute. And I, on my iPhone, was able to show her the Encyclopedia of Australian Science and the list of nurses that we had within the database. And this, this name jumped out and it jumped out for a, a number of reasons. So I thought, well, why not explore very quickly the story around this particular entry. Actually, this was uh, a record we were able to bring into uh, the Encyclopedia or Brightsparks, as it was known, because Joan Durden, a really significant uh, nurse health educator, wanted to get a greater presence of sort of nurses and nursing history into some sort of public register. So we said, yeah, okay, we can expand our representation and scope to bring nurses into the history of Australian science, technology, medicine, and engineering. Uh, so she had a lot of data, we worked with her to get it in there, and this is basically the, the head of her article. Then I thought, okay, well, let's go and go to Google, as we were doing yesterday, and see what happens if we, we uh, have a look for faith in there. Interestingly, 
Unlike what happened yesterday, Trove comes up number one, Wikipedia comes number two, actually against the philosophy that was driving yesterday's thoughts. And then there's the EOS entry, and then there's an entry in Women, Women in Australia, and Nikki will talk about Women in Australia shortly. And I thought, well, that, that's actually telling us something quite interesting. So let's have a look. If we go to the Wikipedia entry, it's all about her cricket. And they got their data from one source, but you can see it's really nicely marked up. It will be, they would have picked it up from some online resource that's using some form of microdata markup, and they can do something really good with that. Uh, but it's just a stub entry, but it's really only coming from one source. If we go to the women's register, we actually have, from a literary sense, a much nicer entry. I think, in a sense, uh, Nikki is a really good historian. She's got a great literary style. Joan was a subject expert, but her literary style was probably not quite as good. And there is uh, a nice set of references, but also, you think Joan's entry was 2002. The Wikipedia entry came later. The women's um, uh, register entry came after 2004 and there was this major piece of work done by an ABC interview which Mickey was able to draw on. So in a sense we were, the story was building. We then go to Trove. So why does Trove win in this four-way race for top, <laughs> top billing? Trove wins because IATSIS was able to put its resources into Trove not too sure when, but relatively recently. Those resources, as you'll see in a minute, are fantastic. And so they have, what we've been able to do is build this story in a very collaborative way around, the, around faith and really to get a much better presence. And so it's a sense of how we can work collaboratively in an open way to really start to get momentum around important issues. So and this is just a quick... One minute, okay. So the other, the other story I wanted to tell was that because this data and all of the structures of the ORMA are is data driven from by design, I had one of my young research sort of student archivists the other day say, oh look, I went and grabbed one table out of the EOS register and put it into a thing called Tableau Public and just within a number of hours came up with some really interesting analytics. One was by gender, you can see mostly male, mostly female, there's a lot of legacy reasons behind that, but also a significant number of unknown. Uh, Visualisation showed, you know, the distribution by occupation, again, mostly blokes, but it was nurses that were standing out as a, the significant female occupation that we had. We could also, uh, because we've got birth dates and death dates, uh, do some interesting analysis and you can see there's a time slider there and we can actually look at the changing nature of occupations within history of Australian science through different periods. Really nice. Uh, we can also do, there's all sorts of other visualisations she had, but this is one that actually looked at distribution of occupation through different 50-year uh, eras and you could start to see the predominance of the late 20th century, the mid 20th century, those professions that didn't exist before the 20th century. So some really quick analytics just at your fingertips. The other thing that you could look at was the, the year of last modified, and again very quickly, this is telling us the story of EOS in the last, uh, you know, since 2002. Interestingly, why I don't know, but it's mostly blokes entries that seem to have been updated. Some of the women, but also you, you can see our own history in terms of sustainability. There was a period where we didn't do any work at all for a range of both internal issues within um, the university, but also with some technical stuff that was going on at the time. So, anyway, that's my story.
Thanks, Gavin. Our third speaker today is Nikki Henningham. Nikki is a research fellow at the eScholarship Research Centre at the University of Melbourne, and she's executive officer of the Australian Women's Register. She's worked on a range of projects, including the Australian Women's Archives Project, the Online Encyclopedia of Women and Leadership in 20th Century Australia, and the Trailblazing Women Lawyers Project. She's undertaken a number of oral history projects for the National Library of Australia's Oral History and Folklore Branch, and is an expert on women's history, oral history, and women's archival heritage, as well as in writing the lives of the living for online publication. She received the Ian McLean Award from the National Archives of Australia in 2005 for work locating records relating to the experiences of migrant women in Australia to augment the holdings of official archival repositories. Thank you, Nikki. Um, this is um, my colleague Helen Morgan, who is just as um, she could just as easily come and speak here. And in fact, I know that there's probably about four or five other people in the audience who could speak about this project, such as its collaborative nature. Um, it's a project that has been ex has existed since 2000. is built on the architecture that was designed by Gavin and the team um, when they and uh, building upon uh, the expertise of the Australian Science Archives project. But what I really wanted to talk today to you about was how it came to be and the relationship that we have uh, between uh, a feminist organisation and a university. Um, and I guess the, the fact that this was always meant to be an activist project. Um, so yeah, in. In March 2000, the National Foundation for Australian Women established a project to support the preservation of Australian women's archival material. Announcing the arrival of the Australian Women's Archives Project, or AWOP as we call it, as an exciting development for the Australian women's movement, the NFAW, which is the organisation who, um, who first promoted the idea, proclaimed the project's feminist intentions from the start. Too often the hard work and recognition of Australian women's individual and collective achievements remain unrecognised, said Patricia Neiva, who was a board member at the time. Um, and an approach by a well-known Melbourne feminist, uh, Mary Owen, who was concerned about the fate of her papers, um, which also included the organisational papers of the Working Women's Centre in Melbourne, and the Victorian branch of the women's electoral lobby, the board galvanised to seek a sustainable solution to the mounting problem of what to do with Australian women's archival heritage. So in 2000, increasing numbers of women and organisations active in the second wave of feminism were working towards having their papers preserved. And so the NFAW developed a four-pronged response and, and, and so the four prongs briefly were to establish a fund to support the preservation of papers, to convene a reference group of experts to cover those issues of representation um, and to advise on papers that should be preserved, to establish state-based communities that brought together historians, archivists, librarians and volunteers to advise the community outside established repositories and to administer funded projects and to establish a web-based register to publicise the location and content of women's material. So not only were the NFAW concerned about preservation, they wanted to promote Australian women's material and make it accessible. 
And previous efforts towards this end had come, of course, in the form of, of published guides to archives and scholarship in public repositories. So, for instance, Daniels, Menain and Picot's 1977 guide, uh, Fernan and Slee, who uh, wrote a guide on Australian women's studies scholarship in 84, and Marion Saw um, also produced a guide in 1992, all published. Um, and, of course, there were custodial responses, such as the Jesse Street Library in Sydney. Now, the NFAW, however, understood that there was a new archival space to work in, the digital space, and their plan was to take full of advantage of this potential by developing the online register of material, and this register is what we now call the Australian Women's Register. The advantage of this strategy, as they saw it, was that it gives open access to Australian women's histories and stories, as well as identifying where the archival holdings are located. Describing the register in the first instance as a bit of a clearinghouse, the board hoped that the, it would link existing catalogues of women's papers in national, state and university libraries with the records of individuals and smaller, more marginal organisations of, often overlooked by major repositories for, reason, for good reasons now, as we know, space, expense and so on and so forth. The NFAW always conceptualised the project as one born digital and one that prioritised contextual description and accessibility as opposed to creating a physical archive. And by establishing the project as one in national in, sc in scope, inclusive in approach and digital by design, it aimed to protect, preserve, promote and make accessible the records and therefore the history of Australian women. And in so doing, it made explicit the centrality of history and feminism to the NFAW's foundational purpose, which was to ensure that the aims and ideals of the women's movement and its collective wisdom are handed on to new generations of women. So as well as being born digital, the AWOP was always designed to be an act activist infrastructure project, one that shared feminist knowledge while it created it. Ah, okay. So, <laughs> okay. So, I'll, I'll move be, move towards how the um, the state-based local committees were crucial in the early years of the project to raising funds, and they still are. They still are. Um, they write countless applications to philanthropic trusts and requests to individual donors. However, we did get vital uh, financial support from the Vice-Chancellor at the University of Melbourne in 2000. And then we also got a really big grant from the Commonwealth Government Office of the Status of Women to research the details of Australian women who had received imperial honours in the 20th century. Register content, including fully researched written biographies of a selection of the 4,793 4, women recipients listed, were linked to further biograph uh, bibliographical and archival resources. And this obviously significantly increased um, the register content. It was called Faith, Hope and Charity. And I guess the, the point of this is that the fact that we write stuff about women is actually a development of our concern for records and archives. What we discovered, however, that by writing about women, it was actually a really good funding model. Uh, we got an enthusiastic response to this register of biographical entries about imperial honours women. And, and so since then, the AWAP has, AWAP has been awarded numerous grants from Commonwealth, state and local government organisations, charitable organisations, private individuals to complete thematic exhibitions, based on research focusing on specific groups of women, such as women in sport, women journalists, rural women, women in parliament. 
30 seconds more. Okay. <laughs> We've got 20 exhibitions available from our site now. 15 of them, I was really surprised, but have actually been funded through the efforts of the local committees. Um, our biggest ones have been, of course, ARC linkage and infrastructure grants. And they have all, they have meant that we have that firm basis within a university academic context. And I guess we can talk a bit more about how that, those sustainability issues as they relate from the academic through to the grassroots uh, um, support us, uh, but we, We've found that this model, even though we have those times, like Gavin demonstrated graphically, of, of dips and, and highs, this, this model combined with an absolute um, you know, dedication to making our data open has created opportunities for sustainability that you might not expect. Anyway, there are 6,000 entries on women in our register, many of which are what the journalist would, would, call, uh, would call the first draft of history. Um, several of them are compilations of stuff out there and some are very short. I'll leave it there. Thank you, Helen. Thanks, Nikki. Our next speaker is Kay, Kay Walsh from the Biographical Dictionary Unit of the Research Section of the Australian Senate, which prepares the Biographical Dictionary of the Australian Senate. This is a rich resource of biographies of Australian senators and clerks of the Senate. Currently those who served between 1901 and 1983, but soon also to include those serving between 1984 and 2002, which is produced in both hard copy and online. Kay is a researcher and editor for the Senate Dictionary. She's worked on a range of major publications in the area of Australian studies over the past three decades, including the ADB and the Oxford Companion to Australian Literature. She began as a research officer with the Australian Senate in the 1990s and has edited and worked on a range of papers on Parliament, as well as editing with Joy Hooton the two-volume Australian autobiographical narratives and annotated bibliography. Thank you, Kay. Thanks very much. Um, as um, virtually the last person standing in the Biographical Dictionary Unit, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here to describe the project to you. Um, the Biographical Dictionary was founded in the mid-1990s. The then um, Director of Research in the Australian Senate um, had visited the um, History Office at the, U the um, US Congress. She was um, impressed by the work of the History Unit there, particularly um, the biographical work. And um, she hoped, I think, that perhaps the Parliament might establish a history office. <coughs> that was not to be. It's never come about. Um, the Australian Parliament um, seems to be preoccupied with the present or, um, at best, with the immediate past. And, um, but the clerk of the Senate at the time, Harry Evans, was, um, had a keen interest in history, um, particularly parliamentary history and he believed that the Senate should keep its own history. So the timing was good. Um, the project for a bi biographical dictionary of the Senate was approved as a Centenary of Federation project, fully funded by the Senate. <coughs> of course, um, it's a long time since the Centenary of Federation. The dictionary is still going, just. Um, it was obviously felt important to complete the project. Um, and that, 
the fact that it has survived for as long as it has was due to the su support of Harry Evans and the, and the current clerk of the Senate, Rosemary Lang. Um, I must say, often in the face of opinion, that this was not actually core business of the Senate. Um, and biographical dictionary unit was often targeted for staff and resources when budget was under pressure. The um, dictionary provides biographies of individuals, but uh, collectively um, it forms a history of the institution of the Senate, um, a parliamentary history, and a contribution, I think, to the research into Australian political history. We, we try, have always striven to um, present clear and balanced biographies of the lives and contribution of senators. Um, while we are not looking to, uh, in any sense, to um, pull these people down, we have always uh, attempted to, to present an honest picture and we, I think that we have presented them warts and all. Um, three hard copy um, editions have been published of the dictionary, um, contain, each containing about 100 biographies, um, slightly more, of senators and clerks. Um, they're published in a chronological order of groupings um, by date of departure from the Senate. Another volume will be published in the first half of next year, bringing um, the um, covering senators who retired between 1983 and 2002. <coughs> and um, I think for the time being, that will be the end of this project. Nobody could look at the Dictionary of the Australian Senate without being aware of its um, debt to the um, ADB. And there's a clear influence there in um, standard, I think, in style and um, format. Um, a major difference perhaps being the length of our entries. Our entries tend to be slightly more detailed than ADB entries and we also give more in the way of um, endnotes and references. In the early years of the dictionary, much use was made of ADB resources. We um, used the material collected um, by the ADB um, and there was a considerable amount, I, I hope we can reciprocate to the ADB now with, as we've gone ahead of them in time. Um, there is considerable overlap between early entries in the, um, the first two volumes of the dictionary and the um, entries in the ADB. Many of the early senators were um, members of colonial legislatures they were um, often involved in movements to federation. And in any case, the ADB fairly comprehensively covered um, members of the first parliament. There is also considerable overlap in the writers for um, the, our biographical dictionary. Um, like the ADB, our uh, entries are made up of um, biographies written by voluntary contributors, scholars and others. And for example, um, Geoffrey Bolton, who was very active for the um, ADB, was also a significant contributor to our dictionary and in fact was um, sat on our advisory board 
as did John Ritchie from ADB and in recent times Melanie, Melanie Nolan. So there is a, a fair bit of overlap in that regard as well. Um, we have recently, oh, in the last couple of years we have established a website. Um, this also clearly owes much to the ADB. Um, we have also loaded our entries onto Trove. Well, I, I hope to be able to tell you more about that um, later. Will I leave it there or will I? Yes, thank you. Thanks, Kay. Now, our next speaker is Odette Best. Through her bloodline, Odette is a Gurengaring and a Bunthamura woman, and through adoption, a Kumumberi woman. She is a senior lecturer in the School of Nursing and the Ujuru Unit at Queensland University of Technology, having previously spent 10 years teaching in schools of nursing in Queensland. She has a PhD from the University of Southern Queensland titled Yedjagulin, the Stories of Queensland Aboriginal Registered Nurses, 1950-2005 and with Bronwyn Fredericks from Central Queensland University. She is the author of a book on Torres Strait Islander and Aboriginal nurses and midwifery care. She's also a member of the Australian Dictionary of Biographies Indigenous Australian Working Party and a member of its Indigenous Australian Dictionary of Biography project. Odette. Okay. Morning, everybody. Um, I'd uh, uh, like to first, as is custom, to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're standing on today. And I'd like to thank um, Paul for his fantastic um, welcome to country on Friday night. Um, I'd also like to thank Melanie um, for uh, inviting me here today and also uh, Malcolm for really pushing me to be here today. Um, <laughs> I was the last one standing out of the Indigenous Working Party group to be able to undertake today, so yeah. Um, uh, I will actually only be five minutes. Um, <laughs> ours is very, uh, one of the very new uh, uh, working parties that's uh, come into alignment with the ADB. It is a resurrection, though, of uh, a, a former or previous Indigenous working party um, uh, doing collaborative work with the ADB. Um, uh, this last configuration actually uh, occurred uh, technically or officially last year in 2015, but it came about due to Melanie and Malcolm coming to... AATSIS back in November 2014, I think it was, yes, uh, when the National Indigenous Research and Knowledges Network met in AATSIS. Um, we are called NIRICAN. Uh, NIRICAN formed back in 2013 and uh, is made up of 41 uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander academics from across the country uh, based at 23 of the universities. Um, we are split into four nodes. Um, I obviously sit in the health node due to me being a nurse for a very long time now. However, uh, my passion is actually history, so I also sit in the Yurukai node. Uh, Yurukai is um, the history node. It is a Wiradjuri word, and it means old stories or long stories. Um, so when uh, the ADB crew came to the Nirikin get-together in November, it was very much a, a talking about the, wanting to re-establish the Indigenous Working Party for the ADB. 
they uh, wanted to talk to the Yurikai Node, which is made up of people like myself, uh, Professor John Maynard at Wallatooka, uh, Professor Len Collard from University of Western Australia, Professor Jackie Troy from University of Sydney, um, and uh, Senior Lecturer Shino um, Hashoki. I'm not very good with Shino's last name. Um, so essentially it was a pack of us um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander historians who they thought that they could um, utilise some of our knowledges and research to be able to feed into the process. Of course we accepted. We are due to have our very first um, Indigenous Working Party meeting, uh, oh I can say this month, we are the 2nd of July, so this month we will be um, having our very first official meeting. The components that we get to feed into the ADB is very much hidden Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories that aren't very well known and have actually been um, very closed down within our own communities for a very long time due to the incredibly problematic history that Indigenous Australians have actually had with researchers. However, um, people like me, um, I personally do research into Aboriginal uh, midwives and nurses. I did an historical PhD into this area. And in this journey, I got to discover the amazing history of this woman here. So just very quickly and in conclusion, um, I'd like to introduce you to May Yarrowick. May Yarrowick is the first Aboriginal midwife that I've been able to find in Australia who undertook her training in 1905 um, at Crown Street. Yeah, I heard the gasps. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite amazing history. Um, she did her training at Crown Street History, uh, Crown Street Hospital, and the matron actually wrote her up as a half-caste. Um, May never married and never had any children. So for me it's been a fantastic journey of how you actually negotiate history with non-Indigenous people who actually have Indigenous family members. Um, and it's been really interesting for me because it's not an undertaking that I am used to. I'm used to dealing just with Aboriginal families. And May had no descendants. Um, so we're really excited as a working party to be re-engaged with the ADB. We're looking forward to it and hopefully being able to bring some really rich and very diverse stories of outstanding Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islander Australians. Thank you. the roundtable part of our discussion and the way it's going to work is I'm going to direct some questions to our speakers and then when we get near the end we'll open up for a, a little while for questions from the audience. So perhaps if I could start with a question to you Kerry. Like many digital projects I understand that Auslit has um, found that sustainability has been an issue. Every project finds its own way, of course, but I wonder what opportunities you see for resource sharing and cooperation amongst projects like this as a way forward. Thank you very much. Um, okay, so yes, sustainability has always been a big issue for all of us, um, you know, <laughs> trying to find ways of um, keeping the lights on and, um, the, and most importantly, um, our people employed. Um, I think that's the, m the main thing and obviously where um, we spend an awful lot of time trying to uh, create the conditions of survival, which is a phrase that Gavin used um, when I was um, chatting with him on Friday night. Um, I spend a huge amount of my time writing grant applications, um, 
negotiating with people for support, institutional support, for um, content support, and, um, and also to build our subscription base, because as everyone knows, Auslit is a subscription base. Um, it's largely um, subscribed to by institutions, which means that there is a wide reach um, in the public. Um, We've been assisted um, by, in, by uh, that through organisations like the, the um, NSLA and we've of course had a huge amount of support from the NLA over our, over our, um, our time and through the university libraries as well so, and, and the public library sectors and the schools. So trying to reach a whole range of people through the patrons and members of those organisations is, is a, you know, a, a way of... Um, maintaining an, a baseline of income that enables us to continue pursuing um, uh, our goals of creating a complete record of Australian literary history. Um, it's not ideal. I'd love it to be an open access resource. And for a couple of, or for quite a, a number of years, I worked very hard trying to find a model that would actually uh, um, allow that to occur. Because we inherited a subscription database, I th a, a subscription business model, that has meant it's really hard to give up unless you've got something to replace it. And um, I, I tried very hard to find a model that was, was an open access model that would be sustainable. Uh, unfortunately, we haven't been able to achieve that. So we have a lot of our content, the website, web-based side of it, website side of the of Auslit is freely available. Anyone can come along and do a do a keyword search. It's more the research aspects of our service delivery that is behind the subscription barrier. So that's my, my response to sustainability. It's a big one, ongoing. I don't know what the solution is really. In terms of resource sharing though, that's also a really difficult question because I'm not even sure what that means in, in, in our terms. I mean, does it mean that we try to... Um, do things collaboratively so that we're not repeating work? Um, or does it mean that we, you know, we have try and find some one size fits all for all databases um, and dictionaries and then share that data? But then what would happen to our individual flavour and where would we be able to then, how would we determine what sort of investment we put into particular subject areas? So I think that's a really nutty um, and difficult question as well. <laughs> we like to start with the hard questions. Maybe I could turn to you now, Gavin. Given your experience managing a range of digital projects, what what views do you have on this issue of resource sharing? And and you know, is there a way that we can all just cooperate together to overcome this issue of sustainability? That's a that's a very large. Oh, I'm not too sure this is working. Right. Yeah. This is working good. Um, I, it's a, a very large intake of breath to <laughs> try and figure out how I might tackle that. <laughs> the um, as Kerry said, we talked about this on Friday, and I was talking about in context like the necessary and sufficient conditions for survival and sustainability. Uh, and I think one of the things that you highlighted there is, and it's something I, I tried to indicate in my, my talk, was trying to figure out where you fit. Now, clearly, and I think it's a fantastic, Auslit has a niche and a market and really good uptake within that. And so, and you wouldn't want to lose that. And that's, and that's really significant. Um, we, 
when we started with a, uh, the Register of Archives of Science in Australia, we, um, there was very little money, there was no history, and there was very little sense of what the future might be. And so it was like, what can we do that will make a difference, that will fill a gap? And how can we do that in such a way that we can optimise and, and essentially or even maximise the reach and the utility of what we're doing? And to a certain extent, we then, um, I suppose, what, what happened, the various, we got bits and pieces of money, we got um, you know, some, some ARC funding very, very early on um, to enable things to happen, but it was really saying there was a vision there that we were trying to hold on to that I was really committed to, and then all of the other work that happened around that and essentially then helped to support it. And what happened in, for us in 2000 was that we, rather than archivists looking at what we were doing, saying, that's great, we want to do that, let's work together. Uh, we found it was actually academic researchers who were saying, what you're trying to do in the way you are interlinking and mapping knowledge spaces or historical spaces, that's actually what we're trying to do. But you're showing us a whole lot of new tools that we've never had before to do it. And that was the driver that led us to get some federal government money that enabled us to build a generic tool rather than a just one-off custom-built tool, which is, it tends to be what has happened uh, right across the globe, that people build their own system, and sometimes they're absolutely fantastic, like Oswick, um, and there's enormous amount that we've learned from looking at what everybody else was doing, but you know, we had a go at actually building a generic tool, and so that's enabled us to take that way of thinking about things and start to work with a lot more people, and they all, and, it's, and, and so we start to share that sustainability but what I learned, sorry, I'm thinking it could get too long, from my actual history of science and technology archival work is that looking at the history of the, the, the plastic banknote, looking at the history of the bionic ear through their archival collections, is that a necessary condition is the total dedication of one person to that project over a generation plus, like 25, 35, 40 years. So you've got Graham Clark, you've got David Solomon. And I thought, well, if this is my life, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> so 31 years later, it's still going. And, and I think like, well, I, I can't put myself in the same class as David Solomon and, and, um, and Graham Clark. But what tends to happen is this, you know, it's happened, is that this world has grown around that. It's just fantastic to be part of it. So enormous enthusiasm, you know, that it is sustainable yeah. if we stick at it. And I think this is the story in this room, is that, you know, how many people here have been in this gig for ever? <laughs> you know, that's what holds us together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, Nikki, I'd like to bring you in here because you were talking in your talk about issues of sustainability and the way that you've been funded for many years over... Um, with a variety of grants from individuals and the ARC. Um, what, what insights would you offer for other dictionary projects on this issue? What he said. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think, I, I mean, yeah, I'm not teaching none of you how to suck eggs sort of thing. I mean, um, the, the, the enthusiasm of an individual is certainly a, a part of it. And I sort of jokingly said to, to Gavin and Helen, oh, what the Women's Archives Project has needed is someone like me who's prepared to go through the roller coaster now of 
close to 15 years of one-year contracts over and over again. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a precarious existence, but because it's a feminist activist project and one that I believe in, I'm prepared to, to nut that out. But I mean, I, I said quite literally in the audience, there are, peop there are members of this audience and you know, on the panel here that would not, I would not be doing, able to do the job without their commitment as well. I mean, we've got fantastic collaborations. And one of the, the, the key collaborations we do have is with the National Library Oral History Project, who have been vital in um, us receiving most of the funding because we are able to build we provide them something they need, which is an academic reference group to help them figure out which women should be going into their oral history collection. And at the same time, we are able to provide, as I said, first drafts of history very often on those, on those women who we interview. So there are some excellent collaborations and I can't, and, and many of the, the people um, on our, our steering committees are actually members of, uh, you know, our staff on the, the National Library of Australia, but it's also the, the community members in, um, our community volunteer members of the National Foundation for Australian Women. So what we do have is a great collaboration that moves from the community through the repositories and into an academic context where Helen and I are now working, and Gavin, uh, are now working on finalising a fabulous project on, on Australian women lawyers. Um, and we will next month, you know, next couple of months, moving into a project on um, women, women on the land, women farmers. Um, so, and these are all built on a reputation of academic rigour, which is combined with com community volunteers, open data, um, and a, um, a strong commitment to the ideals of feminism. Yeah. Of course, one of the reasons why sustainability is, is an issue is because of the question of revisions. So I want to turn to, to that now. And perhaps, Kay, I could ask you, I know that that's an issue for the Biographical Dictionary of the Australian Senate, one that's on your radar, given that yours is a finite project. How do you deal with this issue at present? And uh um, Well, obviously, um, an online edition opens up the possibility of updating and altering entries. Um, I've been really interested in what's been said about this in previous sessions uh, at this conference. It's a particular um, question for the um, biographical dictionary because um, we're, we're dealing to a certain extent with um, living subjects. Um, how faithfully should the online entries reflect the hard copy entries? Um, you have to recognise immediately that um, an online edition is not the same thing as a hard copy edition. Mm. Uh, it has differences in um, formatting, in accessibility, all, all kinds of differences. For all that, we have always tried to reflect very accurately <coughs> what is in our hard copy edition in the online edition. <coughs> We're asking ourselves now, how realistic is this? Um, there are a number of issues. And this is, this is a work of reference. It's a source of factual information. So we're obliged to make it as accurate as we can. Um, it's foolish, would be foolish not to, for example, put in death dates of people who have died since we last published. And we do that um, without any fuss. <coughs> we also look to correct errors that have been brought to our attention or, or um, obvious um, 
emissions <coughs> errors of fact, and that seems reasonable to us as well. But many of the volume four, four senators um, are still living, and um, many of them have had 20 or 30 years of um, productive life since they left the Senate. So really, our biographies in the hard copy editions are not going to be complete. There is um, often a lot to say about a senator. For example, um, Gareth Evans, um, Graham Richardson. What should we do um, to enhance the biographies that we've already written in hard copy? Um, what we could do, I suppose, is get somebody to write addenda and put it on the end of the entries and clearly acknowledge that this is a supplement to the published edition. But then you look at the um, instances of people who have had their careers revised in the public eye for some reason, and um, the example of Sir William Slim was raised yesterday. What should we do about um, the entries for people who have been reconsidered and rethought um, since, since we published them? Um, I, I'm inclined to think, and I think Kerry said this yesterday, that um, we should um, recognise the integrity of the entries as they are written. And where, um, where there's been widespread reassessment of the value of somebody's contribution to the, um, the Senate or to public life, um, the only thing we could conceivably do, I think, is to commission a rewrite at some time in the future and load the rewrite if, if we felt strongly about it and make a link then to the, um, the entry as previously written. Um, I think that um, updates also imply a continuing commitment of resources. Are we going to be sitting watching our entries and changing them all the time? I think that way lies madness. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how to implement the changes, how to make it clear that this was our original entry and this is the revised entry. I think we could have, it would be easy enough to put links to addenda and coragenda on, on the, um, the entries, but I guess really we will be looking to see what other people are doing. That's great. Um, I'd like to turn now just briefly to the issue of representation. And perhaps we could, I could start with you, Odette. Of course, the um, in proposed Indigenous Australian Dictionary of Biography will concentrate on Indigenous Australians, but I wonder if I could ask you to reflect on the question of what it means to be representative. Is it just a matter of numbers, or are there other ways in which you know, we could be incorporating different cultural norms and practices in our biographical entries? Um, I... Uh, don't believe that it is just a matter of numbers. Um, we heard yesterday um, uh, the, the the magical figure that gets pulled out about Indigenous Australians being we represent 2.5% of the um, Australian population and therefore we should have a reflection of a 2.5% essentially across the board in a lot of things. From a health perspective, it's certainly something that gets discussed in health a lot um, in how we actually increase nurses, for example, or doctors, for example, or um, health workers, uh, you know, we, we must hit the, the magical 2.5%. I fundamentally have a problem with that because um, when we talk about 2.5% Indigenous population, that's from 
until our life expectancy of about 62. So um, Indigenous Australians are the exact opposite to non-Indigenous Australians in that we are breeders, we are not stayers. So <laughs> we, have <laughs> we have a really high proportion of Indigenous Australians that are under the age of 18, unlike non-Indigenous Australians. And we have very, very few Indigenous Australians who actually live over the age of 60. Our current life expectancy for women is 62. So I've got about 12 years left to live. Um, so I, I find it very problematic, problematic when we talk about, you know, the golden figure of 2.5% when it comes to representation of Indigenous Australians. However, in saying that, I thoroughly believe that we need a greater representation of Indigenous Australians in ADB. I think it is something that has um, uh, been addressed at different times in the life of ADB, especially with the uh, publication of The Missing Persons, where it actually did go up quite phenomenally, uh, the representation of Indigenous Australians, and that was fantastic to see. Um, but I do think we have a great, greater work to do, but I don't think it necessarily needs to be attached to the figure of 2.5%. So on the issue of uh, representation, perhaps I could go back to you, Nikki. The um, Australian Women's Register is, of course, um, itself about redressing historical underrepresentation of women. But I wondered if I could ask you what your view would be on that idea that we don't need specialist dictionary projects the same way that we used to. Bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, we, we heard all through the program yesterday about the the fact that things have not improved despite you know despite the numer you know the increase of women in public life since mm -hmm. such and such and in some cases figures have gone back and I, I'll, I'll just give you a couple of anecdotes I, I guess to underline why I just regard it as, as still absolutely essential um, and one of I, I, I've, I've had the good fortune to interview a number of people um, mainly women but I have interviewed some men and I will give no names and and I, when I talk about this person who is uh, was um, interviewed as part of uh, a project I interviewed academics and we did talk about the um, the ADB and the representation of women in it and how low it was and this person said well women weren't doing a lot and so you know what you wouldn't expect them to be better represented and of course that's just rubbish mm. and as um, as someone said yesterday, um, you know, it's hard. You have to work hard to get diversity in. And so we still must do that in terms of the mainstream publications. But while that's not present there, we still need these specialist, these specialist forms. So that's one anecdote. A second anecdote I'll give you um, relates to the series of interviews I've been doing with, with women lawyers. Uh, one of the women I, I interviewed is the first woman to have actually taken maternity leave while she's a judge. Um, and the day that she was um, appointed a judge, which wasn't that long ago, um, her son went to school and in show and tell, and, and I, will, I will tell you, I'll give you, a, 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 I'm not allowed to give dates because she doesn't want this, in, this information out there yet, she's still a judge. But it's in the last five years that this happened. Her son went to school, said, my mummy was appointed a judge today and the teacher said to him, are you sure it was your mummy and not your daddy? Now, if we still have this stuff happening, we still need to have projects that focus on the role of women um, absolutely specifically. Yeah. Uh, just 
perhaps going back to you, Odette, I wonder if you could um, comment maybe the rise of women's history has sort of seemed to change the, the nature of biography and brought a lot of changes with it. I wonder how you think that the writing of Indigenous biography might change the way we write and think about national biography. I think within the last 15 years there's certainly been um, an, uh, a much larger increase in uh, Aboriginal women's and also Torres Strait Islander women's uh, biography and autobiography. Um, so we've had a lot more Indigenous women actually get their stories out there. So I'm talking people like, you know, Pat O'Shane, Kathy Freemans of the world. Um, uh, I'm just trying to struggle. And she's a nurse too, so I'd be beaten if I didn't don't get this <laughs> right. Um, uh, one of the old, Ellie Gaffney, sorry. Um, Ellie Gaffney, one of our Torres Strait Islander nurses, releasing her autobiography. So that certainly has happened uh, within the space within the last 15 years and it's actually happened at a greater pace than what Aboriginal men and Torres Strait Islander men have actually done uh, biography and autobiography work. So I think that's fantastic. Um, because a lot of the focus when it comes to our um, Indigenous men has certainly been around the uh, realm of sports mm -hmm. and we do know that and our, a lot of our Indigenous men are at you know, incredibly elite sport levels. Whereas our women have been able to access education, I believe, uh, more thoughtfully and more successfully than what our um, Indigenous men have. And I think that has actually been um, a byproduct of that actually occurring. So people like the Pat O'Shane's of the world um, and Ellie Gaffney's of the, the world and all that type of stuff, they had excellent access to education, which I think has actually impacted on that. Um, I think we need greater diversity amongst it, though, um, and I think we need more of it. Um, I'd like to bring you in, Gavin, at this point. Um, you manage a whole range of projects. And, of course, I, we've been talking already in this conference about the idea of keeping an original entry as a sort of a time capsule of the moment it was written. But sometimes readers do find text written in years past offensive or problematic. So I just wonder if I could ask your view on that in terms of updating and sort of how we, how we deal with that. Uh, yeah, this, this is a, an issue that we've all had to tackle with. And I think one of the things that struck me you know, very early on, probably 1994, when we first went on the web with Breitbarks, was that we actually had a new genre that wasn't really possible in the print world, that was possible in the digital world, in the web world. And that was one that was uh, able to be updated on a regular basis. And so that concept of the point in time record and spe a specific time and space-based edition was replaced by something where individual pieces of data could be updated at any point and made available and republished. Now, that, um, and I, I, it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a new form and it's a, it's a data-driven form rather than a, a sort of a print genre-driven sort of technical form. And I think we're still working through what this new genre is and how we manage it and, and what it actually means and the implications around that. I know that we, you know, the, the, the Faith Thomas example I showed you is a really good example of that where Joan Durden had some data that, I haven't got the right name there, Joan, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, had this great data that she'd done from his historical research and she wanted somewhere where it could be in the public domain and it was not publishable anywhere else and so we, we took that on. We have not, and she, we got that data in there, that's not been, we haven't done any more work on that since 
about 2002. But you know, as I showed, because it's gone out into that space, it's stimulated these other things. And in fact, collaboratively, we even, we're, we're somehow addressing that issue. Mm -hmm. At some point, we will look at how we might improve the way we are linking, say, to Wikipedia, well, we already linked to Trove, but ways in which we make it clear that there is really good data in these other places that you should go and see. I think one of the, um, the one of the big projects that we, we got involved in just after the, uh, the work we did with the ADB and getting that online, so around 2006, and was, with, uh, was with the Forgotten Australians and former child migrants in producing the, the Find and Connect web resource, which is a, you know, now a federal, federally, federal government funded project that is going on. And um, that's one where there is sufficient investment while this thing is in a very live and active space that the data is continuously being updated and we have new editions coming out quite regularly reflecting that. And it's very much you know, an engagement with the community and it's one where I suppose where what we learnt from thinking about national biographies and biographical dictionaries and the informatics and the standards and the things that might underpin that, taking that from a sort of a broad national or even a research-focused project to, to projects that address very specific needs in the community, you know, to, to improve things. Uh, just turning to you, Kiri, I, I'd like to ask you about um, the, the way that Ausford is a much broader resource than the biographical, as in fact many of our projects are. But I wonder if any of the issues we've been discussing strike you in a different light because of the way that Ausford deals also with organisations and works of, of fiction and so on. subject-specific database um, don't actually apply uh, to Austlit in, in the way it, it does with uh, in other circumstances. I mean, something that's called the, the Dictionary of the Australian, Biographical Dictionary of the Australian Senate, it's got a, a finite scope. Um, um, storytelling is, is across the board and, you know, so we've, and because we're working online and we're working in an extensible database that allows us to say, we need better coverage in a particular area, so we can focus on that. We can bring resources to that, um, and um, and I think I mean Blackwords is a perfect example of that. In that in that Blackwords has its own scope policy, its own um, its own uh, raison d'etre for for not just literary purposes, but for community building purposes and recognition, and and so we 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 apply a totally different framework to what we do in in Blackwords as we do to um, other to the you know more wider area of Australian literary um, recording, um, and I think it, one of the demonstrations of that of the value of that is that um, the Black Word site is actually something like the sixth most hit site on Austlit's um, website. So, and it's hugely important in education and and um, and in you know um, just representation, we get so many comments from family historians and people who are searching for, for family members and, um, and that sort of thing. Um, I guess one of the distinctive differences is that many of the dictionaries of biographies d discussed today um, have their entries written in an authoritative manner by scholars who are absolutely expert in their field and they bring that knowledge to bear to that 
to that entry or to those entries that they author. In Auslit, we have uh, we we are constantly updating our records. So. We, but we also have the history of the record. So every biograph every change to the biography is, is recorded. We know exactly what the, um, what the biography looked at at a particular time-stamped um, moment. Um, but it's, we don't focus as much on, the, on writing perfect biographical entries as we try to on the scholarly bibliography side of things. So we record the details. When we have the resources, we certainly record um, uh, biographical entries that are handsome and good and accurate, um, but we're we're not averse to changing them. Um, but we uh, and, and we but we you know just try and cover as much as we possibly can, and we and we don't always have scholars who work with us to create those. So um, yeah. well, I think something you know the, the key word that you said in all of that was extensible, mm. and that's actually the heart of what this new genre is all about, you know, for, for us, it's absolutely, it's extensibility, which means that you can take on these thematic projects, I mean, you, you've got mm. your themes and the Women's Register have got their, their thematic exhibitions and the Encyclopedia of Australian Science have got their thematic exhibitions and this is a way that we are able to tackle all of those particular things and, mm. you know, and to weave those journeys through what is a network of knowledge. Yeah. And, the, and I think it's, because it's a network, it's extensible and it's a, a, a new way of, well, for us, it's probably old hat, but for others, it's still a new way of thinking about mm. what, what you know what representation is, and, and making those links between all right. of our all yep. of our separate databases provides that yep. um, those avenues of exploration. I guess that yeah. that we're all about. Mm. Perhaps one final question before we turn to the audience. I wonder if I could ask you, Kay, whether these issues strike you in, in a different way, given that the Dictionary of the Senate, as Kerry's mentioned, is a sort of defined universe of people. Um, what yes. do you think? Uh, certainly, um, the issues of representation um, don't ap don't apply. I mean, if you're in the Senate, you're in the dictionary. Mm. <laughs> and that's it. Um, the, so they're self-selected. They they are an elite, really, I suppose, in their own way. Although, if you look um, closely um, at the um, the people who've been in the Senate over the years, uh, some of them are prominent people, and some of them might qualify um, as Forgotten people, as we mentioned yesterday, or perhaps if not forgotten, certainly not historically noteworthy lives. Mm -hmm. And it's the collective lives that we're looking at, really. It's the um, it's the ability to answer questions such as such as who are Australian senators, where do they come from, what motivated them. So it's the every entry in that sense is in, as important as any other, and. Um, we're talking about a relatively small group of people. We're talking about about 450 people. So you could, uh, compared to what um, we heard yesterday about um, um, Christine's indexing project, you could very easily scan through the, the 450 people yeah. in the dictionary and work out um, where the country of origins um, or um, what the education level. So we're looking at a very different sort of a, a project. And one of the best things, I think, about the um, dictionary is that the shared experience of senators. I mean, many of them shared the same experiences and many of them were present at the same events. And if you look, for example, a great example is the dismissal of the Whitlam government. Yeah. <coughs> you look at, um, you know, Reg Withers, who um, devised this plan for um, 
blocking supply in the Senate rather than vetoing it. And then you look at poor um, Ken Reach, who went into the Senate and uh, put the motion for the passage of the supply bills, not knowing that the Whitlam government had already been dismissed. You look at the, um, the senators who were swept out of office in, the, in the, the double dissolution election and you look at the new ones coming in to start new life in the Senate and you look at the years of um, continuing angst and bitterness in the parliament after the dismissal of the Whitlam government. That's, that's, where, that's the most interesting and I think the, the best aspect of our history. Thank you, everyone. This has been fantastic, and I'm sure we could keep talking for a long time, but I'd like to ask for questions. <laughs> ah, there's lots. <laughs> I think we've got a roving microphone on its way. Turlo. So, so just, just I, I went and did the Faith Thomas search because I don't know who she is at all and by putting forename and surname and no comma, Wikipedia wins the game, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> but but the, reason, the reason I raise it is I'm fascinated by the, the relationship between indexing and algorithms and name forms and how it really conditions our research. Most people who don't know anything about Faith Thomas, myself included, will just go to the first link and, and, and that conditions it. So, but that brings me to my question which is, to see your work and some of the amazing work being presented over the last day or two, has th have there been attempts, and there may not have been a need to have them, to, but have there been attempts to develop a biobibliographical data model for integration between these services and functions? Because I'm really intrigued by that relationship between dictionaries, archives, national library name authorities, and it, it's been done in some countries, and in Ireland it's problematic because of really difficult name form issues and institutional issues. Um, and I just wanted to ask, especially Gavin, but all of you about that. Yeah. Um, I, I'll start on this, and I have a, quite a particular take on this because it probably relates to my own story. Um, when I started work back in 1985, I basically looked at the, the data models that were used by the National Archives, of, or the Australian Archives as it was known then. And as an Australian archivist, I was brought up on the Siri system, which is a particular way of looking at it and a data structure for documenting uh, archival materials. And I also looked at the International Council on Archive Standards that existed at the same time. And they had a, uh, they sort of harmonised with the Australian model, but it was not particularly good. But basically, in the archival world, there was uh, a clear distinction between how you documented records and how you documented authority records. And that was when I set up the first data model for the, the registered archives in Australia. That was something I made absolutely clean and clear that there were authority records which were rich, as rich as I could make them with a DBase 3 plus database, and there were the descriptions of the record collections that existed around the country. That model still holds now. Now what we've done, we're now working on the third iteration of the ICA standards and they will be released, uh, the first draft of that for public comment will be later this year. Uh, however, uh, around the second second version of that happened around the late 90s, early 2000s, and at the same time, a group of us produced an XML schema to represent that particular standard. Which so that was known as the ICRCPF standard, the International Standard on Archival Authority Records for Corporations, Persons, and Families. 
that was, in a sense, this a key standard that underpinned the ORM, the development of the ORM, and to have an XML schema, which was a data-driven schema, not a um, an XML, what do they call them, the, the things that represented print forms, whatever they called, forgotten, old, old, old stuff. Um, it was a data-driven schema, not a print form hierarchical driven schema. Now, the key thing about the encoded archival context was that it systematically enabled the interconnection of records, you know, of different things, so of both EAC records themselves, but also links to other things. And I think that was probably one of the first international standards that did that in a systematic way. Now, that, it was slow in its uptake because, I mean, we, we were able to implement that to have that as a, an export from our system from day one, back, back in 2000. But it was like having a, a telephone system where there's only one handset. There was just no one to talk to. <laughs> However, now look, I'm going to tell this story because this is my story. And I'm going to tell <laughs> it. It was, a, it was that time that we were having a lot of discussions with the National Library with things that were going on, which were the the discussions were happening prior to Trove emerging. And my recollection is that they, I was talking to Judith Pierce about this and saying, this is sort of what, what you could do around authority records to go from very thin authority records that were on the periphery of the catalogue to rich authority records that were in the middle of the catalogue, which enabled a whole lot of things to be brought together. And they tried all of the Library of Congress standards and all of the other standards, you know, mods and all the other stuff, and none of them worked, and they had looked at EAC and said, oh, it's just too freaking complicated. But they basically came back and said, well, actually, it's the only one that works. And so that conceptually, if not uh, any other way, actually then, I think, to me, is the step to Trove. So if you're looking at any data model, I think, as at a conceptual level to say, how can this work, then you, you have to look at EAC and the way it was built and constructed and the way it's being now being utilised within the United States from a thing called social networks in archival context, which is basically the whole National Archives and Records Administration plus a whole lot of other things through University of Virginia and a whole lot of other coming together under a, a massive accumulator based all on EAC. It's extraordinarily powerful. So, and it fits beautifully with biographical, national biographical data. You know, it, and it's and it's very even though it's complicated, it's very forgiving. I think we might um, just take one more question quickly before uh, there's one here in the in the group. <laughs> I'd like the panel, um, even Odette and Kay, to think about an issue that we have hinted at, even in this talk, but not addressed directly um, to my mind so far. I on the issue of representation, we also have migration, birthplace, parentage, ethnicity, and in relation to Auslit in particular, I think, language. There will be many people who are excluded from national dictionaries of any form of biography at this stage because they are leaders within their community, because they write um, in their community language. Half of us have at least one parent born overseas. 25% of us um, have both parents born overseas. 12.5% have both parents born 
um, in a non-English speaking environment or, or, or we ourselves were born in that environment. So it's really a very large proportion of the Australian population who are affected some way or another by the act of migration, the act of resettling in a new country and at least a quarter, for a quarter of them, the um, conceptual act of learning to operate in a new language. So how do archivists and biographers um, not neglect that hidden side of Australian society? Can I, can I just respond quickly to say that um, for many years we've had a project running um, under the auspices of Austerlick called Australian Multicultural Writers, um, run largely by Venka, Professor Venka Ormanson from um, University of Wollongong. And, un, and in that project we've actually been recording publications and biographical details um, in a range of languages. So our indexing is done in multiple languages and um, the recording of the publications is done in multiple languages as is um, the recording of the biographical, so we, we're you know, totally inclusive in terms of biographical details. Biogra biographical entries are written in English, but where publications are in languages other than English, they're recorded in the same way. Um, unfortunately, again, it's a resourcing issue. You have to have people who speak the language, read the language, and then can transcribe that information. So we're certainly not um, comprehensive in our coverage, but we've probably got you know, incredibly good records in a number of different languages. So just wanted to make the point. Can I just say briefly, uh, I mean, any project that we engage in, as you know, Anne, there is a steering committee group that actually advise, we, we don't arbitrarily decide who's going to go in, that there is a steering committee that will advise it and we will attempt to make those steering committees as diverse as possible. Um, and it's 10 years ago, I did actually do a specific project on looking for migrant women's organisational records. And um, the by far and away, the people who were most interested in that project were people who had foreign language archives. But we still have that problem of, uh, you know, physical cura curation. Um, and it, it that one's just not going to go away anytime soon. I mean, there are many of those sorts of archives that are still hiding under people's beds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hiding under people's beds, placed under people's beds, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we might draw the session to a close at this point. I know there are a lot more questions out there than we've had time for, so I hope you'll continue the conversation over morning tea and enjoy the rest of the day.